Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. 1.5 million Syrian refugees are in Lebanon today. But as the fighting quells in areas of Syria, many of these refugees are considering returning home. Who gets to return, the places to which they will return, and the circumstances under which refugees move back to Syria are intensely political decisions. And as my guest today, the journalist Charlotte Alfred explains, the return of refugees, albeit in small numbers, has begun, and it's becoming a tactic of the civil war. Charlotte Alfred is the managing editor of the news website Refugees Deeply. Her long-form article, Dangerous Exit, Who Decides How Syrians in Lebanon Go Home, explains the geopolitical calculations and tactical military considerations behind these refugee returns. And on an individual level, she explores the deeply personal dilemmas facing individual refugees as they make this decision. It should be noted, the UN Refugee Agency is not aiding in the return of refugees to Syria. They have concluded that the situation there is not safe enough to guarantee the security of returning refugees, and in fact, they have warned countries against sending refugees back to Syria. But Lebanese and Syrian forces are working together to enable some returns. I think the return of refugees and the politics around it will define the next phase of this civil war, and Charlotte Alfred has written the most important explanation of what that means. A couple of quick notes before we begin. As always, please send me your thoughts via email or Twitter. I'm at Mark L. Goldberg of who you would like to see featured on the podcast or what topics you want explored. I, I do love hearing from you. I know that I say this often, but I do this for you. So if you have any specific interests that you think might be relevant to the rest uh, of the Global Dispatches podcast audience, send them my way. Also, if you are a regular listener, I would so appreciate it if you left a review of the show on iTunes and in general, just kind of told people about the show, you know, growing the audience is how we keep this podcast a sustainable enterprise. And so you can do your part by sharing the podcast on social media and posting a review on iTunes. I, I so appreciate it. And now here is my conversation with Charlotte Alfred of Refugees Deeply. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. The first thing that happened last summer, um, so summer 2017, um, was groups of refugees 
starting to go back in a kind of more organized fashion. And initially, it wasn't really anything like a refugee return. It was specific um, pockets within the Lebanese-Syrian border, um, which is a kind of very mountainous area in the northeast of Lebanon, had had throughout the conflict a few militant groups, um, including some associated with the sort of Free Syrian Army, which is you know, known as sort of the quote-unquote moderate opposition, mm-hmm. and then others associated with Al-Qaeda-linked organizations and a small pocket of ISIS were, were sort of holed out there. Um, and they had been a security risk for Lebanon for, for many years. And in sort of two separate simultaneous operations, the Lebanese army and Hezbollah, the uh, Lebanese political party and militia, which is is fighting alongside the um, regime of uh, Bashar al-Assad in Syria, basically got rid of those those groups. And as part of the kind of military strategy, as it has been inside Syria, um, they negotiated a sort of surrender and evacuation deal. So the militants were able to, you know, give up their arms, go back to either an area where um, they had come from, but predominantly to the north of Syria, which is under opposition control. And that's where everyone... Idlib evacuations, presumably, right? Which is is the province to which... Yeah, I actually uh, just yesterday interviewed Jan Egeland, uh, about yeah. the the situation in in Idlib, yeah. Um, so th- uh, many of these uh, sort of people evacuate to Idlib, and that's predominantly um, it's negotiated between Hezbollah and um, opposition groups. These three different opposition groups. It's um, the people who were members of those groups, but also um, a a number of refugees, and it's not a hundred percent clear how many are refugees and how many are associated with the with the fighters decide to go home along with them or decide to go back to Syria, I should say, along with them, um, because obviously most of them um, were going to places that weren't their home. Um, and so a few families that we spoke to, um, they went back to Idlib. And as, as has happened repeatedly, um, because Idlib has been in so unsafe for so many reasons, um, they had to move again, um, either within inside Syria or others um, crossed over the border into Turkey to find safety again. So that was last summer. And that was sort of a almost like a test case um, on the part of Hezbollah to see how to start to organize larger groups, still only, you know, several hundred, up to several thousand going back. So small numbers compared to 1.5 million inside Lebanon alone. Just to to, to talk about the numbers um, briefly, the numbers you just cited and and what you cite in your piece is 1.5 million uh, total refugees in uh, Lebanon from Syria. And of that, only so far like 18,000 have have returned. That was until um, that was until this year. So, so that was 2017. What changes in 2018? So, in the spring of 2018, um, it's the beginning of more organized groups beginning to go back to government-controlled territory, with the um, in- involvement and cooperation between the Lebanese. Um, intelligence agencies and the Syrian intelligence agencies. So refugees um, are offered an opportunity to put their names forward to be approved by both the Lebanese intelligence and then the Syrian intelligence and return back to their country in a sort of more organized fashion. And may I ask, Um, what 
yeah. individual dilemmas um, do refugees face when they're trying to decide whether or not to to sort of offer their names to these intelligence services to potentially return? I, I know you interviewed several refugees who sort of weighed this question very heavily. I mean, this is happening right now. This is the most um, the most difficult decision that I can I can really think of. Um, will your family be more safe? where you are right now, where there are many risks, or will it be more safe back in the country that you initially came from, um, but have a lot of trepidation about the relationship between the government and its citizens and the relationship between the citizens at this stage of the war and without, you know, any, any, anything that looks like any sort of resolution. So, I mean, uh, can you tell like an individual's story, someone that you interviewed, that that sort of elucidates this this dilemma? Yeah, I mean, one of the hardest um, for for me was um, a, a family, um, three generations living in um, Arsal, which is a town on the Lebanese border with Syria, um, who still haven't haven't decided whether to go back or not, um, and they are. Um, as I sort of spoken to them over the weeks and months, they are changing their decision weekly. Uh, on the one hand, um, the the grandmother, the sort of matriarch of the family, is just absolutely insistent that she is going to die in the place that she was born, um, and she's a extremely. Um, uh, she raised her son by herself. Her father, her um, husband died. Um, shortly after she, you know, gave birth to her only son, um, and she feels that she has a responsibility to um, begin to rebuild the family home and, and start a life for um, her son and her grandkids. Um, her son Mohammed um, is completely torn um, by indecision. Um, he it, he wants to honour his mother his mother's wishes. Um, on the other hand, he has two teenage sons. Um, who um, will they fall within the age um, 18 to 43 um, where you are um, conscripted into the Syrian military which is still an extremely dangerous um, proposition so, and so son, young men who return are conscripted mandatorily yeah the the men who have gone back um, in part of these groups have been given um, an assurance that they will have six months to get their affairs in order before they'll be sent to battle. But it's assured uh, that they'll be sent to battle. It's assured that they will either be sent to battle. Some have also been promised that they can serve locally in sort of local security units. We don't have good information about how far those promises are being honored. And refugees are extremely skeptical about anything that they're hearing from the government um, because um, this is this is a government that has um, not um, has had many many different um, uh, the, the pay, what's on paper is not what's on reality. I mean, in, in so many ways. So if if uh, there are all these risks uh, upon returning, then why not just stay? What's weighing against them wanting to stay in in Lebanon? I mean, I understand this this matriarch has this kind of deep and profound connection to the place of her birth, and that's totally understandable. But um, surely some of the benefits of staying might outweigh the risks of leaving. So that's where this family is now. But what is weighing the other way is um, for Mohammed, he is 
terrified of his sons being arrested in Lebanon. Um, so he sees them potentially being sent to battle in Syria, but also at risk of arrest in Lebanon. Most refugees in Lebanon do not have formal paperwork. Um, so they are at risk of, of arrest, especially men, um, at any time. Um, there's also um, very few avenues for legal work. Um, so families are, you know, scraping by. Some do receive um, international assistance. Others um, are not able to, um, as Lebanon hasn't been formally registering refugees since 2015. Um, UNHCR um, stopped registering at Lebanon, the Lebanese government's request. Um, so there's there's some dangers um, that have been um, ongoing for the past years and have sort of piled up um, debts and and sort of concerns over sons growing up um, under the shadow of of uh, risk of arrest. And at the same time, the the real dilemma for Mohammed now, um, and this is what has made these these decisions even more acute since the organised return started in the spring. Mohammed said he's afraid that this is a sign that they are going to be forced back in the near future um, and that he won't have any a decision to make um, in a few months' time. So he can either go back now when there's some sort of, you know, safety in numbers as a bunch of people are going together and um, at the moment perhaps there's an interest in showing that these these returns are safe, but we're not sure that they are, but there's an interest right now in, in showing that in the future they could be in an even worse situation. Mm -hmm. And and I, I want to talk about that that worse situation, the the sort of growing movement in Lebanon for the forcible return of of Syrian refugees. But before we do that, uh, I, I wanted to ask you about a point you make in your piece, which I think is is really stunning and sort of made me look at the issue very differently, which is how the return of refugees in this kind of organized fashion is actually a tactic of, of war. Can you explain what you mean by, by that and um, how that sort of tactic manifests itself? Yeah, absolutely. So it's, it's sort of a mirror um, of the strategies that the, the Syrian government um, and then particularly since Russia um, intervened in the war um, in support of the government um, have been using inside Syria. So what what has tended to happen um, is that um, the government, um, with the support of uh, especially Russian um, air strikes, will um, put pressure on an opposition-held um, area for a very long period of time. And then eventually it will get to the point where um, the the citizens within that area will be clamoring for some way out. And then Russia will offer... Um, to broker um, what they call a reconciliation deal. So the, the people becoming reconciled to the government. Um, there's been a lot of excellent analysis of these deals, um, which some of which I refer to in the piece, but essentially they are um, a sort of peace deal, um, uh, as a sort of surrender deal dressed up as a peace deal, um, and they've been a way to um, transfer populations um, out of certain areas 
um, and especially into Idlib, where there are a lot of people who've been internally displaced from various parts of the country have um, been um, contained now. Um, they are also a way to sort of sequence battles. So you sort of pacify one area um, and then you move um, on to another um, and you can sort of time and move your military resources around um, in the most advantageous way um, to Russia and the Syrian government. So this this reconciliation process um, started to be extended to people inside Lebanon um, over the past um, months. Um, and it's also a way, therefore, to control exactly who comes back, what circumstances they come back under, how much information you have from them, um, and and kind of control where they go. So the people who have been returning this year, um, it's there's a few different numbers, but it's it's several thousand um, who've returned this year this year under these organized returns um, have gone back to areas along the Syrian Lebanese border on the Syrian side. So um, areas that there is an interest in moving people back um, at specific controlled times to repopulate it. Um, and move on with the next the next phase, which is you know battles in Idlib, um, and the main the main um, objective right now, and and you'll see this in everything that's said about refugee returns um, going forward, is to persuade the international community, including the United States and Europe, um, to get involved in the reconstruction of government held territory and rebuild um, Syria that is under Assad. So it's sort of trying to create the conditions on the ground in um, these kind of border towns to which re these re refugees are returning, albeit in small numbers, that might sort of give the appearance that sort of the, the war is over in, in this area. So let's get on with reconstruction. The war is over. And also um, what you'll see in um, how the Russian government is presenting it right now is um, there what they say is that there is a humanitarian imperative for the international community to support returning refugees. So, so they can um, present um, humanitarian aid um, as a, um, you know, as an, as an obligation um, to the international community who wouldn't want to support refugees um, returning to their homes um, as a way to open up um reconstruction assistance um, to government-controlled area under the current circumstances, which is, um, you know, very much under the government's terms, under the government's control and going to um, people who are closely tied to the to the Syrian government, which the international community has been very reluctant to do and, but, and remain so. And, and that's another really interesting point uh, you make in, in your piece, which is that this curve process of um, resettling refugees kind of in a way is intended to force the international community to interact with Assad and his government in sort of a more normal way, right? It, it sort of like kind of normalizes him and, and sort of makes him um, appear more statesmanlike. It's, it's, as even if it doesn't make him appear statement-like, because I think that that probably is, is not going to fly. Sure. Um, uh, that might be a bit too much of a reach, but um, it definitely portrays this is your only option. Mm -hmm. um, and you'll see one of the reasons why I found it so interesting to look at what has happened in Lebanon um, over the past several months is that everything that has played out um, in the conversation within Lebanon is now being recycled 
um, for use on the international stage by Russia. So within Lebanon, um, there has long been this discussion about um, we need to move on with returns now, which the UN Refugee Agency says is, you know, it's not ready, it's it's not safe, it's warned against this consistently. Um, and the the sort of proponents of return in Syria have said, we can't, we can't wait, we can't hold the issue of refugee return, which is a humanitarian effort, um, at hostage to a political process that isn't going to happen. And secondly, um, you know, talking about this as a sort of humanitarian gesture, um, when it's very unclear from the refugees' side whether it really that really looks very humanitarian to them, because um, what we do know about what happens to people to return in Syria, some of it is quite is quite troubling. Um, so that now is being completely reproduced um, in discussions. Um, even this past week, um, you know, Russian government representatives talking about. Um, the, you know, the US is sort of holding back the returns for sort of shadowy reasons, and they're politicizing it. Um, and actually, what we're trying to do is a very kind of, you know, depoliticized humanitarian repatriation op- operation, that's completely using um, the playbook that was um, forged in Lebanon earlier this year. And and that playbook is is sort of informed or influenced in part by very hostile political forces in in Lebanon towards Syrian uh, refugees. And there is, as you write in your piece, this growing movement towards the forced repatriation. What in the UN they call like refoulement, refoulement, which is sort of the illegally um, displacement of refugees back to their home countries when it's not safe to do so. But there's this growing movement in Lebanon to to, to do just that. And you know, as you mentioned earlier, um, the uh, refugee you interviewed was weighing whether or not to be uh, whether or not it would be better to leave now voluntarily or be forced out at, at a later date. Can you talk a, a little bit about? sort of the the politics of forced repatriation of refoulement in in Lebanon because it does have sort of really powerful political forces behind it it seems yeah although it's important to note that um i mean when when trying to characterize the politics of Lebanon um it's com- very complicated and it's completely torn um between two opposing sides um, and it's not clear at the moment which will prevail. So um, within the political establishment and to an extent within the country, um, there is a sharp divide between um, the parties um, and the communities that are with um, the Assad government um, that are, um, you know, eager for for the the war to be, you know, declared over for the refugees to return, whether they like it or not. Um, and the, the president of Lebanon is is part of that block. Um, however, on the other side, there is also a strong um, constituency that is um, very opposed um, to the to the Syrian government um, under Assad. Um, that is um, very very concerned that the refugees don't stay forever. It's, you know, a quarter of the population doesn't seem like um, that's going to be sustainable long term, um, but that they are returned in a safe way, which is defined as when the UN Refugee Agency says that they're ready to 
begin facilitating returns because they have um, they've set out a number of you know particular thresholds. Those have been met and it and it's ready. That has not happened yet. Um, and part of the Lebanese government, including the prime minister, um, has said, well. While on my watch, that's that's not going to be um, that's not forced repatriation is not going to happen. Um, Lebanese politics is is very very kind of complicated, and they um, they had um, elections earlier this year and are still in the process of trying to form a, a cabinet, um, a government. Um, so there's a there's a you know a power struggle going on um, within Lebanon, um, and that that power struggle in many ways mirrors the kind of larger international. Um, divide over um, can we can we deal with Assyria under Assad um, and can we work with with Assyria under Assad and what kind of political transition is necessary in order to start to help with reconstruction and refugees um, and and the other side who you know are just are keen for things to move on which is being very effectively spearheaded by Russia right now and, and what's I think also just so profoundly interesting is that you have this alliance, it seems, between um, certain political forces in Lebanon and right-wing forces in, in Europe, like Viktor Orban and, and right-wing political parties that just want and, and are advocating for the forcible return of, of Syrian refugees. There is like this growing international movement to uh, refoul uh, Syrian refugees. And I think the it's important to note that um, the Lebanese government, um, the Syrian government, um, Russia are acutely aware of how the politics of Syrian refugees in Europe has played out um, and are strategically using that um, to their advantage. So the, you know, the Lebanese president um, will meet with um, the sort of far right block from the European Parliament, as he did in June, um, and he'll directly warn them: if you don't help us repatriate um, from Lebanon, they're going to come to Europe. They're going to rush to your continent. Um, so it's very clear that um, the the main players who are behind a kind of um, premature return of Syrians to Syria um, will use the um, uh, European um, desire to to uh, have refugees return, but also not have any more refugees come. There's still 1.5 million refugees in Lebanon um, who, who are not in a good situation. Um, and so they're very willing to, to use that to kind of put pressure on Europe to move um, beyond where it might be comfortable in terms of reconstruction and, and dealing with the, with the Syrian regime. Uh, well, well, Charlotte, thank you so much for your time and for this really important piece of, of really important journalism and, and unique piece that I think takes a look at, at um, what will probably be like the next big trend in the international community's relationship with Syria, which is, you know, as the civil war winds down, how are we going to deal with the millions of, of people left refugees and, and their potential return to Syria? Thank you so much, Mike. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Charlotte. And yeah, as I said uh, earlier, I, I do think this is uh, an important exploration of what will be the next phase of, of the civil war, which is the politics and circumstances of the return of refugees to uh, at least some parts of, of Syria. 
All right, we will see you next time. Stay tuned. Bye.